Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello, I'm Peter Doran. Welcome to LawPod. Gabor Mate was a keynote speaker at a major conference in Belfast on the subject of trauma and recovery. At the end of the event, he joined me in Botanic Park to reflect on his pioneering work and writing. As a survivor and a child of the Nazi genocide, having lived most of his first year in Budapest under Nazi occupation, it came as no surprise to learn that Mati is first and foremost a humanitarian, with strong views on the societal sources of suffering and trauma, notably in our dominant economic system. And it is in the childhood years that he has discovered the formative experiences that frame adult experience of trauma. Batty is a psychiatrist, working on the radical frontiers between the individual and society, and between the mind and body. One of his most recent books bears the title, When the Body Says No. In the interview you are about to hear, Batty introduces his understanding of trauma, in the process offers a deep critique of our economic and political structures that are often the most profound causes of our collective distress. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the organisers of the Belfast Trauma Summit and Nula McKeever for making our meeting in the park possible. So the, 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 the language of trauma has become uh, pervasive, ubiquitous, and I, I wonder... What that tells us about the, the modern condition, um, is, is it a sign of the times that this has become such a, 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 a part of the currency of our day-to-day uh, exchange? Well, my first observation would be that the language of trauma has not become ubiquitous enough in that uh, all the important institutions that ought to be recognizing the um, ubiquity of trauma don't even know the concept. So the average medical student never hears the word trauma in four years of medical school. And even though uh, in actual practice, whether they're dealing with uh, physical illnesses or mental illnesses, for the most part, they've been looking at the impacts of trauma. But they don't understand that. They can't see it. Therefore, uh, they can only deal with symptoms rather than causes. The uh, average law student, a future judge or solicitor or lawyer or or whoever they are in the legal system, virtually everybody they're going to deal with in the courts is there because of trauma, but they don't see that. So politicians uh, who make um, government policy uh, that affects a lot of people have no idea of what trauma is and how their policies, sometimes uh, overtly, sometimes covertly, sometimes by omission and often by commission, actually traumatize people. So I wish the language of trauma was more ubiquitous, on the one hand. On the other hand, trauma has also become, in some circles, kind of a, a byword. Like people say, I went to this movie and I was totally traumatized. Uh, well, no, they weren't traumatized, they just felt upset, or they had a bit of emotional discomfort. That's not the same as trauma. So, on the one hand, the word is used kind of loosely and generally, by some people. On the other hand, it's completely misunderstood um, 
ignored and 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 um, left unaddressed in most of our culture. So it depends which part of that you want to look at. So this is a good moment to invite you to discuss your particular insight about the the nature of trauma and uh, the implications of your particular approach. Sure. So people often think of trauma as something terrible happening to you, being sexually abused or emotionally abused or physically beaten or the loss of somebody important to you or a tsunami or a volcano or a war. That's not what the trauma is. Trauma is not what happens to you. Trauma is what happens inside you as a result of what happens to you. So trauma is a constriction. When, you, when you're traumatized, it's not that you suffer. Suffering is not the same as trauma. You can suffer without being traumatized. You can't be traumatized without suffering, but you can, be suffer, you can suffer without being traumatized. So trauma is what happens when, as a result of the trauma, you become more constricted uh, and uh, alienated in your relationship to yourself or to the world. So the traumatized person doesn't have the same wealth of potential responses as the non-traumatized person. So before the trauma, you were more open, more um, capable of responding flexibly to life. After trauma, you're less capable, you're less, less, less flexible. So that's what trauma actually is. And f- from that point of view, for trauma to occur, you don't have to have terrible events. Um, all, all that needs to happen is that as you're growing up and as a sensitive child, your needs aren't met. That's going to constrict your responses to the world and that's going to cut you off from yourself. Which is why trauma is ubiquitous in our culture because this society, uh, capitalism fundamentally, as Marx pointed out in the 19th century, uh, alienates people from themselves and from their own nature and from their work and from other people and from nature. Uh, It doesn't do so deliberately. It does it automatically as a consequence of this particular way of life and economic organization and, 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 and power relationships. And as Eric Fromm pointed out, uh, who's um, a social psychologist, he said that the family is the psychic agents of the culture. So although most trauma occurs in the context of the family, the family is conditioned by the culture. So the modern family is not designed to meet you, people's genuine needs is designed to uh, fit people into a very unnatural culture. And uh, through the stresses and through the didactic teachings of the parents, um, kids are uh, culturated to fit into a culture that doesn't actually meet their needs. And when you talk about uh, capitalism and the culture, we're now... I suppose in this particular phase of uh, capitalism, the logic penetrates all of our major institutions, for example, education. So I, I take it that the uh, these pathologies or difficulties are more embedded than ever because of the way in which our Western societies in particular have internalized the logic of the market. Well, now, if you were a laboratory scientist growing microorganisms, uh um, in the laboratory, you'd put them into a culture, which is called a culture medium, a culture broth, which had to have nutrients for them to sustain them, their lives on. If a lot of the organisms in that 
culture broth were falling ill or not thriving very well, you'd say it's a toxic culture. And if you look at what's happening in our society, in a culture medium that we're growing up in, more and more kids are being diagnosed with ADHD, with uh, various developmental problems, with autism, huge rate of anxiety. Uh, I know in the UK and also in the United States and Canada where I live, um, autoimmune diseases are on the rise. Um, so on the one hand, we have these fantastic advances in medical technology and medical interventions. On the other hand, the population is more and more chronically ill. Well, what's that about? We live in a toxic culture. We're just like those microorganisms whose needs aren't being met. And so if you understand, if you want to understand broad trends, you can't look at individual predispositions or individual choices or genetics. You have to look at what's happening in the culture that's, that's generating so much dysfunction, so much illness, so much addiction, the overdose crisis, which is not as numerically dramatic here as it is in North America. But in the United States, every three weeks now, you have the equivalent of a 9-11 happening in terms of the number of illicit overdoses. The numbers are going up in Britain as well. And it's interesting, when you look at where in Britain it's going up most highly, it's going up most direly in those areas which have suffered the most economic deprivation. So there's a direct correlationship between uh, the functions of the economic system and the degree to which people are traumatized and then Addiction is nothing but an attempt to escape from the impacts of trauma. And so therefore, the more inequality, the more dislocation, the more uh, unemployment, the more despair, the more loss of community you have, the greater the risk of addiction as well. Well, that speaks to me of the whole culture, not of the pathology of the individual addict. So uh, what's implicit there is that any conversation, especially a policy conversation about trauma, is incomplete without looking at the uh, the structures and uh, specifically the capitalist uh, economic structures? Well, you know, I grew up in communist Hungary and uh, that was also a materialist society except the economy was run by the state, so it was a state capitalist system. And there's a great joke that came out of Eastern Europe, uh, maybe you know it, where somebody said, well, what's capitalism? Capitalism is the exploitation of man by man. And what's, what's communism? In communism, it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the issue is not whether you call it capitalist or whether you call it uh, socialist. The issue is what is the actual structure? Is it controlled by an elite for the exploitation of the many? And if it is, it's going to be toxic. So yes, the capitalist organization of the economy and, and, and therefore the political culture that necessarily kowtows to that economy and follows that economy, traumatizes people. Interesting uh, observation that I would make, um, uh, Nicholas Rose and others have made the observation, of course, is that the history of uh, psychology as yeah. a practice um, and therefore the uh, proliferation of certain psychological responses that might present themselves as responses to trauma yeah. are themselves embedded in the logic of uh, capitalism and hyper-individualism yeah. and more recently um, inviting people to take responsibility for their fate when in fact it's the power structures that need more attention. Well, as somebody once said uh, that if in the body a cell was growing without regards to the needs of the cells around it, 
and it was actually eating up and destroying the other cells, we would call that cancer. When it happens in the economy, we call it capitalism. And so that that's just the very nature of the system. Now, in terms of trauma and psychology, what's really interesting is that Freud, who's you might say is the founder of one of the founding fathers of modern psychology, in his first paper on neurosis, he actually identified childhood trauma as the basis of, of, of adult pathology. All the clients that came to him, Viennese women, middle-class women, told him they'd been sexually abused. And Freud's original understanding was that trauma is the basis of pathology. Then, in polite Viennese society, just like in our culture, you don't want to talk about that stuff. And so he got scared of his own shadow, and he started denying the trauma, and he came up with these cockamamie theories that these women were fantasizing sleeping with their fathers, hence these theories about penis envy and all this kind of nonsense. And so for a hundred years or more in Western uh, psychology, trauma was ignored. And every once in a while, it, 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 it had to be paid attention to, like in, 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 the, um, in, in the wake of a war, for example, so after the First World War, I forgot what they called it. Uh, there's a name for it, but they had to deal with it. And after the Second World shell War, shock. sorry, shell shock, yeah, this kind of stuff. But on the whole, we, we because the system is so traumatic, we're not comfortable talking about the nature of trauma. So, so it was largely ignored. Now it's coming back at full force, and in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a 20 years maybe. There's been a tremendous awareness of it. So again, I, I, I think that's a good thing. And, 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 as far, and as long as, because it's a true thing. And so as long as we understand what we mean by trauma, and we don't um, use it um, for, uh, as, as, as a synonym for discomfort, but we actually get that it's a limitation and an alienation from self, I think it's very important to recognize. Yeah, I suppose what I was getting at was the risk that certain psychological approaches um, or uh, um, attempts to address trauma uh, edit out the, the structural sources and invite individuals to take responsibility without due attention to the, the underlying sources of their uh, uh, suffering. Yeah, well, I think there's need for both. I mean, if you came to me with depression... I wouldn't be helping you by trying to tell you that your problem is because you live in an alienating society that uh, uh, has inequality and exploitation. I'd want to help you with your own personal dynamics. I'd want to ask you how in your life you start to push yourself down, which is another word for depression. And, 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 and that depression is always begins with the pushing down of our emotions because in the family of origin, they couldn't, couldn't handle that. So you push your emotions down, now you're diagnosed with depression. And if I just give you a political uh, um, screed at that point, I just wouldn't be helping you very much. On the other hand, there's the question of how, how do we, as um, thinkers, as professionals, as citizens, understand all this. Now you have to talk about the larger structure. And, and uh, so it's a question of when to bring in what kind of insight. You used the word automatic to... Uh link the capitalist logic to the, uh, the phenomenon of uh, trauma. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the way in which there's a kind of uh, almost an elective affinity between the capitalist system 
the way it operates and the way it targets uh, the, the vulnerabilities of the, of the human being. And I'm also interested in the way in which you draw on uh, Buddhist insights in particular. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about, when you begin to use Buddhist insights, um, you begin to see how capitalism itself is already a, uh, is almost a spiritual system that has its own version of interiority, has its own version of how we relate to objects and other people. Yes. Um, so it's, it's, I'd like you just to talk a little bit more about your reflections about what you mean by that automatic uh, uh, relationship, um, the way in which it colonizes our experiences as, as, as human beings, and the insights you draw from the Buddhist tradition in particular, which is so insightful about that, the requirement to engage with the self uh, and uh, um, understand the self. Well, let me begin with uh, a quote uh, by a Catholic spiritual leader, teacher called Thomas Merton. Um, it was a, who wrote in 1948, he said, it is true that the materialistic society, the so-called culture that has evolved under the tender mercies of capitalism, has produced what seems to be the ultimate limit of worldliness. And he says, nowhere, except perhaps in the analogous society of pagan Rome, has there ever been such a flowering of cheap and petty and disgusting lusts and vanities as in the world of capitalism, where there's no evil that is not fostered and encouraged for the sake of making money. We live in a society, he says, whose whole policy is to excite every nerve in the human body and keep it at the highest pitch of artificial tension, to strain every human desire to the limit, and to create as many new desires and synthetic passions as possible in order to cater to them with the products of our factories and printing presses and movie studios and all the rest. Now he wrote this in 1948. What the hell would he say today, you know? <laughs> and uh, so what, what, what the system wants us to do is to attach to things outside ourselves that we have to be obtain in order to feel okay about ourselves. First of all, it does that by making feel us not okay about ourselves, and then it creates all these products that are designed to temporarily make us feel okay. If, if I only get that uh, job or, or that product or that object or that car or that uh, relationship or that experience, um, then I'll be okay. And of course, it's insatiable because uh, true satisfaction never comes from the outside. So it wants us to attach to all these things and, and hook us in so as to uh, keep itself going. And that's what Merton is talking about. Now it's interesting because the Buddhist also talks about attachment as a negative thing. I mean, you get attached to all these things outside, you know, you, you lose out on yourself. Then in psychology we talk about attachment as a positive thing. And now we're talking about attachment as the nurturing relationship between parent and child. And the connection is this, that people that don't get that nurturing relationship, where their needs aren't met, and if your needs are not met, you know your needs not for just for physical nourishment or shelter, but your needs for meaning, for love, for connection, for um, self-worth. If those needs are not met, because the attachment relationship is too stressed, which under this system it often is, parents are just too stressed and too isolated to really give their kids what the kids really need 
for the most part. So the less the attachment that's needed in childhood is available, the more attached you become to externals later on. So how this society promotes attachment in the negative sense is by not giving us the attachment we need in the positive sense in the first place. And of course, so what the Buddha says about that is, is that you're not going to find it on the outside. You're going to have to be with whatever there is inside of you. So, so the, the capitalist thing is to escape from your pain by buying this product, you know, and, and be somebody by, by achieving this or, or purchasing that. Like Mick Jagger's, uh, you can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarette as me. You know, you, you, your meaning comes from what you, uh, what you acquire. Well, the less meaning we have inside, because our original attachment needs weren't met, the more we're going to be attaching to the outside to try and fill that, 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 that gaping hole inside of ourselves. What the Buddha says is, you're never going to feel it looking on the outside, and so you're going to have to just be with that hole, be with that emptiness, be mindful of it, and see what emerges in place of it. Now, it's interesting, because what we often forget is that Buddha was a traumatized kid. His mother died before he was a week old. And then that was the source of his suffering. And uh, for all the fact that he was a prince and he had all these physical needs more than met, and he was in the, living in the midst of luxury and, and um, exalted social status, he was not a happy man. And, and what he found is that the way you the way through all that is to give yourself the kind of attention that you should have had if you had a mindful, emotionally available mother in the first place. Mm -hmm. So basically, you have to, he says, you've got to be a mother, your mother to yourself. Now, he didn't uh, draw political conclusions. Um, he wasn't looking at social structure so much. Uh, he was looking through, if you look at read his biography, he would be trying to teach kings and, and rulers to take a uh, a more humane attitude towards their themselves and therefore their subjects. Uh, but I think we now know that waiting for kings and rulers to take a more benign attitude is rather an uh, endless waiting game because it's not in their interests to do so. And uh, there might be the occasional ruler or politician or leader who has some kind of a transformational experience and therefore becomes a genuine human being. But for the most part, those people are well, well selected out of the system before they get to any kind of power. So you can take it for granted that anybody who reaches power in the society, with rare exceptions, has been um, well vetted to make sure that all vestiges of humanity are driven out of them then they're able to go and commit mass murder internationally and smile on television like Tony Blair. And how does that man live himself? He killed half a million people based on a total lie. And he doesn't even shed a tear about it. But that means he's totally shut off and cut off from himself. And he's rewarded. You know, and th so there, and, and the occasional politician does, does show some, um, human feeling and vulnerability, they come under a lot of attack, as we can see in the UK. So the system is beautifully designed to, to, um, to uh, 
empower those people that continue to serve the system in such a way that people will still be trained to be attached to things outside of themselves. In other words, to try and deal with their trauma through externals. It's a beautiful system. It works perfectly. I mean, you almost want to believe in conspiracy theories. It works so beautifully, except it's not a conspiracy. The system has just evolved that way. Not that there aren't conspiracies, we know that. Lots of conspiracies. I mean, I just heard today on the BBC that, lo and behold, the British spy service knew just what horrible tortures the Americans were subjecting their prisoners to, prisoners delivered to them by the British. Well, that's a conspiracy. You basically keep from the public the knowledge that you're torturing all kinds of innocent people uh, for political aims. That's a conspiracy. But, but, but the system doesn't need those conspiracies. It works beautifully um, as a well-oiled machine. Can I just move on now uh, briefly to the, uh, the so-called post-conflict phase in uh, Northern Ireland? And obviously, there's a there's a wider set of relationships involved in that uh, conflict. There's a well, the research has established that there are uh, collective uh, phenomena that seem to be sourced or have their origins in the conflict. There's uh, depression. Uh, uh, there's an epidemic of suicide among uh, well, certain age groups. There's the highest rate of post post post. Uh, traumatic stress disorder here than almost anywhere in the world. That's what I've read according to research recently. High rates of anxiety, depression amongst the youth, self, self-harming self behaviors amongst the youth, addictions and all that. There's a huge, uh, um, what can I say, blowback psychically from the time of troubles. And by the way, I wouldn't say that it's post-conflict. It's just post a certain phase of the conflict. Uh, the the entrenched, uh, I mean, I, you know, who am I to speak? I'm a, from Canada, I've been here three days, so I'm already an expert on Northern Ireland, you know. But that's okay. Um, uh, but just traveling around the city and seeing the monuments and seeing that, this is not post-conflict, it's just the conflict has moved into a more quiescent phase. Uh, people are still holding on to their grievances, their sense of victimization, their inability to appreciate the experience of the other side. Um, I haven't seen much of a shift in that uh, from my very cursory observations. I was going to ask you if you had made some observations already just from uh, speaking to people. I'd be interested also if, if you're picking up on how we talk about trauma. I mean, do you think there's a uh, an in-depth appreciation of how it not only is there to be addressed, but that it, it feeds into the difficulties of uh, completing the journey out of conflict? You know, it, it, it would, uh, <laughs> it would um, exceed even my own usual arrogance to pretend to be any kind of an expert after having been here for three days. But I just attended and spoke at a trauma conference. And I met a lot of people who were really committed to healing and, and to actually understanding the impacts of what happened here and, 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 and to try and get beyond that in a non-sectarian kind of way. So I, I was quite uh, moved and inspired to see that. Um, let me tell you a story. I met a woman, um, I met a British woman who came to this conference actually, but I met her some months ago in another country and she was a Londoner and she's a uh, bilateral amputee, double amputee, both her legs were cut off, 
after an IRA bombing in London. So you can imagine all the phases that she went through of rage and despair and anger and, 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 and vindictiveness. And she went, but she went on a healing journey and she had this attitude that I have to learn from this experience. I mean, there's a meaning in everything. And he went to Africa, she went to Africa to take part in the healing retreat, whether it was in Namibia or South Africa, I forget where. And it was outdoors, and they were going by vehicle, and they were supposed to cross a river at some point, ford a shallow river by ferry, but the ferry had broken down. And so there's no way of getting across. And in the group are two guys, former IRA guys, and they carried her across the river on their shoulders. And the healing for all of them in that? I'm telling you. If those IRA guys can put her on their shoulders and carry them across, and if she can accept that from them, and they can embrace afterwards, anything is possible. So uh, the potential is, because people's true nature wants to heal, wants to love, wants to connect. That's everybody's true nature. And so I, I see all kinds of potential for that, but I do think you have a long ways, long ways to go yet. Yes, at the, at the societal level, um, there's, uh, there's, there's always the risk that the processes of memorialization, yeah. um, the instrumentalization of memory, um, that these, uh, these become uh, the currency of politics. And yeah. politicians, some of them themselves who have been exposed to violence and their yeah. families and yeah. very deeply traumatized as children, the, some of the political leadership have been very uh, uh, close to extreme violence. Um, that it's it can become a, a circular, uh, self-fulfilling uh, prolongation yeah. of the trauma if there isn't uh, an awareness of the attractiveness of um, exploiting or using these memories to embed fixed political preferences or constitutional futures, for example. Well, as a Jew, I'm all too conscious of that because... Uh, my, my grandparents were killed in Auschwitz. I was an infant under the Nazis. I was almost killed myself. And I can't, I can barely even stand to hear about the Holocaust anymore because the way it's used and exploited to justify the oppression of the Palestinians and, and to maintain a kind of permanent victimhood. It's kind of self-image of victimhood. We're always the one that's are being done onto. We have no responsibility except to protect ourselves because we're, all, we're the perpetual victims. And that's so attractive to people. And it's, it's used uh, for economic purposes, it's certainly used for political purposes. Um, it's often led, as you say, by traumatized politicians. If you look at, if you want to look at somebody traumatized, uh, look at the current president of the United States. He's a deeply, horribly traumatized person. He's a severe ADHD because as a child he had to scatter his attention just to get away from the horrible present that he lived in. A very oppressive, uh, domineering, aggressive father, a mother that was totally helpless and, and, and un unwilling, unable to protect his children. One of his brothers dragged himself to death. So, so Donald becomes this person who has no attention span, no impulse control. Um, has to make himself as big as possible because he's so little inside. I mean, he, his self-image is actually zero on the unconscious level. So therefore, he has to project this grandiose, aggressive, selfish, paranoid, uh, acquisitive persona just in order to protect himself from his inner 
terror of the world. And in as much as said in so many words, he said, the world is a horrible place. Now, what kind of world are you going to create when you believe that the world is a horrible place? And so a lot of these people get into politics. And, and, and because they speak to people's fears and prejudices and, and, and unspoken anxieties, they get elected into power. And then they keep it going. Just briefly and uh, finally, um, there's, uh, I mean, there, there are numerous communities of uh, practice involved in the, the uh, journey out of conflict. Yeah. And uh, a lot of them are involved in justice, human rights. Yeah. There's a there's a therapeutic community, yeah. but the, the conversation that's not so explicit. And I think it's interesting, given your your own insights. There's there isn't an explicit conversation about the contribution of the uh, uh, those who are involved in practices of ascesis, uh, yoga, mindfulness, care of the self, care of the body, integrating the mind and body. In a, in a society emerging from conflict where trauma is uh, almost a universal experience for certain communities, yeah. is there an interesting conversation? Do they need to come into the tent when, it, when we uh, acknowledge the importance of those practices um, for uh, the, the journey out of conflict? Well, so I myself have learned for which I'm very grateful for the yoga practice and I've been doing it for about a year and a half and really it's made a significant enough difference in my life that my wife has actually noticed a change, which she's usually not that impressed with my insights. But after, the, after a few months of me doing the yoga, she, she learned it because she was actually impressed, which is that's the highest praise I can ever get. Having said that, uh, those uh, practices can also serve the function of what's been called the spiritual bypass where you're kind of getting yourself in the serene states on the cushion or in the yoga mat, but you don't bring it into the rest of your life. And you don't deal with, with, the, with the unresolved emotional issues. If I use it to escape from those emotional issues, then it's used as a bypass. So it's like with everything else, there's the potential of uh, these practices promoting peace and well-being and groundedness and connection. There's also the potential of them Nothing wrong with them in itself. Uh, if you have bliss on the cushion, that's great. But that bliss on the cushion, it's called a practice. And practice means you're practicing for something. What are you practicing for? You're practicing for life. So if it doesn't enter your life, and if you're using it to escape from some deep, deeper emotional um, distress, then it's going to play a negative role in your life. So it just all depends on who's using it in what context and for what with what intention and with what awareness. Gabor Mate, thank you very much. My pleasure, thank you. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Gabor Mate. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Doran. This was LawPod.